Okay, we're continuing our series in Mark's Gospel. We've been doing this since September with a little bit of a break, and now we're, we're going on on this journey together. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn, please, to Mark chapter 15. And there's so much going on in this chapter of uh, Mark. This is all about the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, it's about being delivered over to Pilate and the mocking that Jesus goes through and and uh, the crucifixion itself. There's just so much going on, and we've only got time to look at one particular aspect, but I would like you to look with me at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lema, Sapathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it behold, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. As we've said, as we've looked through this engagement with Jesus throughout the Gospel of Mark and our desire to be followers of Jesus, um, we've said repeatedly that the Gospel is not just about all the events that happened up until this point, the crucifixion and the resurrection, but the crucifixion and the resurrection are the the, uh, overbearing uh, story that goes right back through everything that we've read together. This wasn't just, we don't know how to end the story, so let's end it this way. Jesus knew that everything led to the cross. Jesus understood that he'd come for this very reason. Uh, We've all, all of us have been born, otherwise we wouldn't be here, and all of us are going to die. But Jesus was the only person who's ever lived on this planet who was born to die. In other words, you are going to die as a consequence of being born. But his very purpose in life was not just about his birth, the Christmas story, but about Easter and about the cross and about the resurrection. It was all about that. So everybody thinks that Jesus came to talk about good morals and some good, helpful teaching. But that's not really what the whole point of the story is. Or people might think that he did good deeds and lived a good life, which he did, but that's not what's so important. Even the miracles that he performed, the healings, the deliverance, even the raising of the dead, none of these in of themselves are are why Jesus came. They're just all pointing to something else. And do you know what they're pointing to? They're pointing to who he is, that he is to be revealed as the Son of God. And it's the cross and the resurrection that prove beyond doubt that Jesus is the Son of God. The good deeds, the good teaching, even the miracles don't prove in and of themselves that he is the Son of God. They're pointing to that fact. It's the revelation that you need. But beyond it is the cross and the resurrection that proves without doubt that he is the Son of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. I'm just going to be 
concentrating this morning on this particular verse, and then we're going to break bread together today. We're going to take, take the wine, take the bread together, as Jesus commanded we should do. But I'm just fascinated by this verse in verse 34, when Jesus cries out on the cross, from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just ask questions the moment you think about that. Why did he say that? Was he forsaken? Had God actually forsaken him? Was he just feeling alone? Was it, was it that Jesus wasn't the son of God, he was just an ordinary man and suddenly at the end he realised that God his father was no God and he wasn't there. So it's all a waste of time, why have you forsaken me? Or did he actually know that this experience of having God separated from him, being forsaken, was going to happen and he knew it long before it happened? I want to suggest to you that that's exactly what Jesus knew when he cried, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't a sudden revelation. Oh, you've forsaken me. He actually knew that this experience was going to happen before he even got there. And to just uh, confirm that, I'd like you to turn back in your Bibles to John 14. And I'm hoping I'm not treading on anyone's toes who's preached sermons before me. I don't think so. But in John chapter 14... In verse 32, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is just a few days before this crucifixion. And when they went, it says in verse 32 of Mark 14, when they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. And he came to and found them sleeping. And so he goes back and forth three times and they keep on falling asleep while he's in his moment of absolute agony. So notice these phrases of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, like he was greatly distressed. He was deeply troubled. Why? Why, why was Jesus going through this? Verse 34 says, he was very sorrowful even unto death. And he cries out to God, if it's at all possible, if there's any way out, could you let this pass from me? Verse 36, it's about the cup, which means a symbol of the, the, the thing that he was going to go through in the cross. Remove this cup from me. He's deeply distressed. He's troubled. He's in deep sorrow. He's crying out to God that if possible, it could be removed. And yet he says, not my will, but your will be done. Actually, the same story in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22 says, he was in such agony that while he was, uh, while he was in sort of tears and sorrow, there were like drops of blood that were coming from his brow. Such was the depth of the agony of his soul that he was going through. There was, it seems to be, an anticipation of something dreadful. 
And I think we have to understand this. The agony and the turmoil he was going through was more than the thought of facing physical pain. That was not the dread that Jesus was facing, terrible though it was going to be. Now just bear with me because we're painting a, a picture here. There was an anticipation of something more awful than the physical act of the cross. What could that possibly be? Turning to Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since verse 1, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I don't know about you, but whenever I've read that verse, I've kind of thought, what does that all mean? The joy set before him, he endures something for the joy set before him. So going through the cross, there is joy in the final outcome. What, what will that be? Well, I'm, I can only imagine that the joy set before him was the thought of, when this is done, I will return once again to be with my heavenly father. He left glory. He left his position with his heavenly father, came to earth, became like a man, became like you and me. And as the end comes towards the end, he's thinking, for the joy set before me, I'll return home. I'll be back in glory. I'll be with my heavenly father once again. Maybe the joy set before him is the knowledge of, I have accomplished everything that I came to do. I was tempted just like all mankind, but I never sinned. I never gave in. I loved even my enemies to the very end. Father, forgive them because they don't even know what they're doing, he said to those who were crucifying him. It was perfection all the way through. The sense of accomplished purpose must have been absolutely wonderful for him. Or maybe the joy set before him was, we've defeated the enemy. The enemy who enslaved mankind in sin is now defeated forevermore. And when he is raised from the dead, then that last enemy death will be conquered as well. What joy there must have been in Jesus' life at that moment that he'll endure something, but the result it will be the enemy is defeated. Even death will be conquered once and for all. And maybe, just maybe, the joy also that was set before him was you and me, people who one day will be followers of Jesus. Enemies like us, who were just blasphemers and stood against him, never thought of him. Oh, for the joy set before him that there will be people, millions, billions around the earth who would love him and would follow him. And he's making a way for them. But for the joy set before him, before he could get to that place of amazing joy, he had to endure. But what did he endure? What was so awful that he endured such agony days before the cross even happened? What was it that had so gripped him? I want to suggest to you there are four things. So we'll go real quick 
and then we're going to say thank you. <laughs> and just saying thank you seems so pathetic, but we've got to express it somehow. We want to say thank you, Lord, that you endured the cross so that I could be one of those, and anybody here today, that maybe even for the first time, could be one of those who comes into relationship with God. The first is the physical pain and agony. Obviously, the knowledge that you're about to go through the most dreadful form of execution that mankind has ever thought of. Everybody accepts that that's true. Being crucified on a cross was the worst form of execution that man had ever thought up. It was designed deliberately to cause you to have as much pain for as long as possible. It was caused so that when you were on the cross, you would just hang there until your last breath. And of course, because you were nailed with your hands and your feet, your body was just constantly moving up and down and up and down until everything, every bone, every part of you was crushed and then you gave up your last breath. And people would be for days, days and days and days, just hanging on this cross, dying in this most unbelievable pain. But the interesting thing is this. The Bible doesn't seem to emphasize this as the agony and pain that Jesus had to endure. Why doesn't the Bible talk about this? I've just told you something that the Bible doesn't actually come, come into great detail about. So why is that? Well, there are two reasons. One, everybody that was alive then knew exactly what crucifixion was. You didn't have to explain to people the agony. You didn't have to explain to people how terrible it was because there were crosses everywhere. It was, it was the way that the Romans treated the worst of the worst, the criminals. And so they knew exactly what it was. We don't. So that's why we have to remind one another. We now know because historians and commentators of the time will tell us exactly the pain and the agony you went through if you were crucified. But the second reason I believe the Bible doesn't go into much detail about this is because the cross is not about the physical, dreadful though it was. It was about so much more than the pain. I could, I could, I could spend another hour telling you in great detail of all the agony that Jesus went through. And it's good to know what he went through. It's good to actually read about it and find out about it. But the Bible doesn't emphasize that because what Jesus is going through on the cross is far worse. It's far worse than the agony of crucifixion. Nevertheless, let's pause here for a moment and let's remind ourselves that Jesus did go through crucifixion physically and it just reminds us of his love. He did it for you. He went through the agony of the cross. He laid down his life. No one killed Jesus. It says that Jesus freely gave up of his life. He could have called down angels and wiped everybody out. But he stayed hanging on that cross through the physical pain. The one who was innocent and should not rightly have been crucified. He was innocent, shed his blood, went through the agony for you. The second thing I want to touch on about this anguish that Jesus was going through was this little phrase that's mentioned here in Hebrews chapter 12, despising the shame. 
So the agony, physical agony, was, was bad enough, but added to that for Jesus particularly was a terrible shame that he was going to go through. And one of the greatest elements of that shame was the fact that he was dying on a cross. Mosaic law said that those who were hanged on a tree were cursed. So Jesus not only was going through the physical agony, but at this moment there was terrible shame because you only crucified slaves, the worst of the worst. So Jesus is now the worst of the worst. And he knew, all the Jews knew, that if you were crucified on a tree, you were like being cursed. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The curse of the law, everything that should have been on you, was taken on him for you. So that though we are guilty, we would be made innocent. And he who is innocent is made guilty so that you can be set free. Acts 5, verse 30. So funny when anyone was talking about, about the gospel throughout the Acts of the Apostles. Do you know the word cross is never mentioned when they preach? It's always the tree. Because they wanted to tell people about how terrible it was to be killed on the tree. Acts 5, 30. The God of our fathers, they're preaching the gospel, okay? Raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. It's kind of like dreadful. Shame upon shame. The lowest of the low, a curse. What did Jesus endure? He endured the innocent one who was cursed and became guilty on our behalf. What is the joy that Jesus endured the cross through? That you and me who were guilty would one day be declared innocent. Was this the pain that Jesus was going through in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's thinking about the physical, but I think he's thinking about, I will be held up to be a shame in front of all people. Isaiah 53, that amazing prophetic text from the Old Testament about Jesus says this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. The curse upon us, the shame that we should have endured, he endured and went through it all. Now, I just want to add one little thing. The shame was also nakedness. Jesus was stripped of everything as he died on the cross. And I think when you're utterly naked, you have no covering whatsoever. The sense of exposure and shame is so great, it's almost that you can't imagine it. All the paintings of Jesus dying on the cross basically have him with a loincloth on. It's like even us can't face the fact that he was absolutely naked. The shame of the nakedness that he would have to bear. He was stripped of everything. And do you know why there was joy in his heart? 
even when he endured the nakedness and the shame that the whole world could see, was that we, who should have been naked, would one day be clothed with his righteousness. He endured it because he knew it was worth it because naked people will be clothed. Adam and Eve, it says, they were naked and they were ashamed. But mankind, even though we sin, can be now clothed through the blood of Jesus and made righteous before God. The third thing is this. Jesus became sin. Physical pain. Shame of the curse. And now, on top of all of that, the sin of the world will be placed upon him. This is why in the Garden of Gethsemane he was in such agony. You've got to understand this. Jesus never, ever sinned. He never knew what sin was. He never tasted, like you and I do on a daily basis, what sin is like. He'd never known sin. And at this moment on the cross, the whole sin of the world, past, present and future, everything you and I have done, is thrown on him. So for the first time in his life, beyond the physical pain, he's now knowing the sin of the world on his shoulders. I think we're getting closer to why Jesus was in such agony on the cross, in Garden of Gethsemane, why he was so much agony saying, Father, is there any way you can let this go? He wasn't frightened of the pain of the cross, but he was in agony at the thought of the shame and the sin of the world being upon his body. The agony and the endurance he endured the cross was this, the weight of sin that he'd never known for the first time in his life being upon him. Again, Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he, bore, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crucified for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Why did Jesus endure sin being placed upon him? Because he knew that the only way for sin to be removed from mankind was by him becoming a sacrifice. We heard it already in our worship. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the only way that could happen was through the cross. And the only way it could happen was through Jesus' blood being sacrificed. Sin was placed upon a perfect human being, the only one who's ever lived. And because of his perfection and his sacrifice, sin could be removed once and for all. And the joy that was set before him of bearing all the sin of the world was that people like you and me, for the first time in our lives, would know forgiveness from every sin that we'd ever committed. That sin would not only be forgiven through the cross, but eradicated and removed forever. That every sin I've committed, because of the blood of Jesus, it's past, it's dead, it's gone, forever and ever. 
a new life, a new creation, a new beginning. And for the first time, I can enter into the presence of a holy God, which I could never do beforehand through my own merit. I would have been just completely annihilated. But through the blood of Jesus, I can enter the holy presence of God and God can have his presence come to us. The Bible says if we repent and confess of our sins and put our trust in the work of the cross, we can be forgiven, it shall be erased. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let's draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There is a new and living way to come into the presence of a mighty, holy God. And it's only through the blood of Jesus that was shed upon the cross. Hallelujah. Number four. Can there be any more, I hear you ask, that he should go through agony? We haven't even got to the worst part. The agony of the cross, the physical pain, the shame of the curse and nakedness, the sin of the world that he has never experienced up until this time. And then this final thing, separation from his father. Something that he had never known once in his whole life. See, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit have been, are and always will be in total wonderful harmony with one another except for this one moment. The whole of history this is the only one moment that a member of the Trinity, because of the only way that this could happen, would be separated from the others. It's difficult for us to grasp this, but this is exactly happened. So this is the point when Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think the agony of the cross was this, that he knew that through the cross, for the first time in his life, he would know a separation from his heavenly Father, from the presence of the one whom he lived before, before whom he wanted to glorify, before the one he only lived for, before the one who says, I only ever do what the Father's doing, I only ever see and do what he's doing, and I just live for him and glorify him. Well, there's going to be no greater moment when he'll do that than at the cross. But until this moment on the cross, there's never been a nanosecond where Jesus has been set apart or has been pushed apart from this moment. But at the moment on the cross, when he is dying, God's wrath against mankind's sin needs to be satisfied. Otherwise, we can't get in relationship with him. How could this be satisfied? There was only one way. A perfect human being, a perfect lamb, was the only one who could. And the father and son, they knew this before we'd ever get to the cross. That the only one that could ever be perfect and accepted was God's own son, Jesus. And as Jesus dies on the cross, I want you to really hear this. The father turns his back. Because he cannot see sin. And he cannot be in the presence of sin. 
And his only son is now, as he looks on the son, he sees the sin of the world. And so he turns away and withdraws his presence. Because he cannot be there abiding, mingled with the sin of the world, even though it's placed upon his very son. When Jesus, it says, endured the cross, not only would he know our sin, but he would know the experience of the Father turning away. But what you need to understand is this, that the Father's wrath, his righteous anger, it's a, if he can put it, it's a good righteous anger against sin. That this was not anger at his son. This was anger about our sin, which he bore on our behalf. God the Father doesn't break his son. He gives his son freely. He left him dying alone and walked away. And the joy that was set before him was this, that this separation would result in you and I having a relationship with a heavenly God, with a holy God. And that the Father's wrath is that it's removed through the sacrifice that Jesus gave. It was satisfied that we might have relationship with him. He did this for mankind. He did this for you as only he could. No one else could lay down his life. No one else could take the sin of the world. No one else could face the fact that the heavenly father, his heavenly father would withdraw from him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he breathes his last and he commends his spirit to God and he dies and the wrath of God is satisfied. Sometimes people say, I don't know if I can believe in a God of love when there's so much suffering in the world. And religions of the world will answer that kind of question with things like, well, it's just your fate in life. Or it's the lot you have to bear. Or many sadly would say, well, that's just the way God is. He's impersonal. It's just fatalistic. You win some, you lose some. People suffer, other people don't. How can a God of love allow suffering? The Christian faith never answers like that. It doesn't explain to us why there's suffering in the world. You're never ever going to understand that. What we do know is this. It doesn't take away from the fact that God is a God of love. And here at the cross, we see a God who suffers more than any human being will ever suffer in this world. God identifies with our suffering and then takes it to a whole other level. He suffers more than any would know. So when I hear people say it's not fair, it's not fair, why? This person suffering, it's not fair. There's a God of love, it's not fair. I'll say to them, what is fair about the cross? What is fair about what's happening right now on the cross? God knows, he understands. In our pain, in our suffering, he's been there. He knows about it. He's lived through it. Would you like to stand?
while we're standing in the banda, meandering their way back to the stage, as they should, because they're cool people. And as we are going to take bread and wine, just explain to you in a moment how we're going to do that this morning, as a response to this amazing, incredible act of everlasting love. Just before I there, I just want us to respond. And you may want to close your eyes for a moment or not, it's up to you entirely. But this thing we've been talking about today, the majority of the world ignores. Some people, they just don't even know about it. They're all around Sidcut right now, thousands of people. They have no idea about this. Some of them do, and they've rejected it. Some of them are kind of half-hearted. But what about you and me today? What about us as followers of Jesus? I reckon I spend a lot of my life, have spent a lot of my life, trying to persuade Christians to be motivated about being passionate about Jesus and his purposes. And there are loads of things that can stir us and mobilize us to want to follow him more. But there's no greater motivation than what you've been hearing about this morning. What depths of God's love displayed on the cross to win us back to himself and change us completely. I have to be honest with you and say that what motivates me is this. And never out of duty... And certainly not because I owe him something. So I'll try and spend my life equaling his love for me, which will never, ever, ever happen. But folks, can I just say, as we're just here now, if this doesn't motivate you to be 100% for Jesus, I don't think anything ever will. All the sermons, all the Ashburnhams, all the prayer weeks, all the, come on, we can do better, This is it, folks. This work on the cross is the the thing for you and me wanting to say, Jesus, I'll live my life for you. I'll follow you. I am so grateful. In fact, I don't even really think they understand how to be grateful. But all I know is I can express it in this way of giving my life to you afresh today. You know, one of the terrible issues that we face is over-familiarity. Just get so used to the story of the cross. I, I have a passion in my life for church kids. And do you know why? Because church kids grow up from a young age knowing that Jesus died on the cross. But it doesn't mean anything. It's just in one ear and out the other. And this is what we need, folks. We need revelation. We need to stand back sometimes in our lives and just be reminded and get revelation of what God has really done for us. And if there's anyone here this morning who's not a Christian and you've never given your life to him, then this morning is a wonderful opportunity for you to come and say, I need my sins forgiven. I put my trust in the blood of Jesus that I might be made right with God. If that's you here this morning, we would love to pray with you. And if you're a Christian here today, well, I don't have to say much more. But as we take the bread and as we take the wine, I would love this to be a moment where we, even in our faltering words, say thank you 
for the cross and for Jesus going through the agony of Gethsemane, facing the terrible execution of crucifixion, facing the shame of the curse and nakedness, facing knowing sin for the first time in his life and knowing that the Father would turn his back was all because of his love for you today and loving you for the rest of your life. 